We are in the book of Micah. If you have your Bible, let's open there. We've been, if you haven't been with us, we've been studying through uh, the minor prophets. And I haven't said this every week, but uh, just so we know, minor is a reference to the length of the book and not the importance of the book, right? It's not major prophets and minor prophets as if one covers more important material than the other. One is just a bunch of longer books and the other is a bunch of shorter books. And I love shorter books for lots of reasons, but one is that they're easier to read through in one sitting. And if you know me at all, you know that that is my soapbox, is to read through books in one sitting. And it's amazing. I mean, Micah is, you know, relatively long, I guess, for one of the minor prophets. It's seven chapters, but I mean, I read through it, I don't know how many times this week from beginning to end, and then go back and read it in a different translation, and it's, it's incredible to read through it all together. In fact, it makes, probably it makes teaching the class a little bit more challenging, because it's like, some are just a little bit too long. I can't read the whole thing on Wednesday night. I wish I could because we're going to do it uh, an injustice because we can't mention everything that the book mentions. But I hope that it whets your appetite so that you go home and that you read it all the way from the beginning uh, to the end. But when we think about prophets and we think about prophecy, when we think about prophecy, we typically think about things in the future, right? We typically think a prophet is someone who tells you what's going to happen in the future, right? But in reality, that's not technically right. I mean, sometimes, a lot of times, they will tell us some things that were going to happen in their future, right? But every biblical book, every biblical book is primarily concerned with the present. What's happening now what's going on right now, and what should be going on right now. This is what you're doing, and this is how you're living, and these are some of the things that are going on, but this is how it should be right now. And then also a glimpse of maybe, perhaps, oftentimes, what is to come. But their primary concern, even when they tell us what is to come, their primary concern is that that affects the lives of the people that are reading that book right then and there. And when they talk about the future, some theologians put it in terms of, it, it's almost like a mountain range, okay? It's almost like a mountain range. Just picture a mountain range there. That'll help you picture it, right? So if you've ever been, if you've ever been to the mountains, I grew up, I told you this a million times, but I have grew up in northwest Kansas, and we would... The closest mall or airport or like big city was Denver, Colorado from where I lived in Kansas. And it was about three and a half hours. So that's how far I had to drive to get to the mall. You know, so I mean, we didn't go very often, but we'd go school shopping. We'd drive to Denver. And every time we'd drive out there, I mean, it's just flat. If you've ever been to Kansas, it's flat. But even eastern Colorado is super flat. It looks a lot like Kansas. And you just drive and drive and drive for hours. And then right before you get to Denver, then you see this huge mountain range. And, and you know, we know that mountain ranges are made up of all different peaks, right? I mean, tons of different peaks. But from a distance, it all kind of looks like they're all the same distance away from you, right? I mean, it's just, you just see a bunch of peaks off in the distance. And it's really hard to tell how many peaks there are and 
if there's a distance between the peaks. But when you get up close, you realize, oh, well, this mountain peak was actually pretty close to me, and this other one is miles and miles and miles away, and this one was taller, and this one was short. But from a distance, it, it all just kind of becomes one big heap of mountains, one big line of mountains. But when you get up close to it, you realize there's actually a whole lot of depth and distance between the mountain peaks, but you can't tell that from the distance. And so a lot of theologians have said that's, that's kind of the way the prophets would talk about the future. It, it's, these things are going to happen, but it's very, you cannot tell most of the time anything about chronology or timing. Like, is this going to happen before this other thing or after this other thing? And what's going to be the sequence of events? The, the prophets typically aren't concerned with any of that. They're just saying all of this stuff is in the future. Judgment is coming. Destruction is coming. A remnant of people will be saved. There is hope. There is future. These things are future promises. These are future consequences because of what's going on now. Here's the, the destruction that's coming. But also, here's why you should have hope. Because this too is in the future. But like, how much distance is between like the destruction and then the coming hope? That's not really the prophet's concern because for their audience, this is still hundreds of years sometimes in the future. They're just saying, look at that mountain range up there. I think that's a helpful picture. Does that make sense? There's all of this that's coming in the future. Once you get up close to it, then you can tell, oh, okay, well, <laughs> the prophet said this was coming and it also said this other thing was coming, but I didn't realize there was going to be four or five or six or seven or hundred years or even a thousand years in between those two times, they just said that all of these things would happen. And, and that really kind of even helps us with Micah, because Micah talks about both Jerusalem and Samaria. Now, Jerusalem is the capital city of Judah, right? The southern kingdom of Judah. And Samaria is the capital city of Israel, the northern kingdom. So both kingdoms of the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, you've got the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, Samaria in the north, Jerusalem in the south, and Micah is talking to both of them. He's talking to all of them. But I mean, think too also about if you were going to talk about Washington, D.C., you know, if I said D.C., listen up, right? Or if, you know, I mean, if you're talking about a different country, if you said Berlin or Moscow, you know, I mean, if you, but if you talk about DC, then, then you know that a person that's addressing the capital city is primarily talking about the leadership, right? And so Micah is prophesying to both Judah, both Jerusalem, the leadership of the south, and also Samaria, the leadership of the north. And he says destruction, and punishment and judgment is coming to you both. Now, Micah actually, now in hindsight, we can look back and realize that Micah lived and prophesied right before the destruction of Israel and that it would be over 100 years later before finally Jerusalem fell. But you can't really tell that from reading Micah. It's just, this is what's in the future. You're both gonna have to answer to God for what you're doing and how you're, you're living. So Micah primarily deals with the leadership, both religiously, the religious leaders and the political leaders. But let's look at some of the text. Micah chapter two and verse one. So again, primarily the prophets deal with what's happening versus what should be happening. What you're doing versus what you should be doing. 
And there's a lot that even we can look back from, look back on and learn, isn't there? And learn if, if this is what God thought then, and this is how God judged his people then, and this is what they were doing then versus what they should have been doing, there's a lot that we should apply to our lives. Micah chapter 2 and verse 1, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it. So they're just, we call that scheming, right? They're just laying in bed, just dreaming up and thinking about evil things that they can do. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. And he says, you do this, and you, you think you can do this, and you scheme these things, and then you just go out and do it, and you look and you say, hmm, I want that field. I want that house. I want that property. I'm going to take it. And you do it because you can because you have the power to do it. And God says through Micah and through all of the prophets, there's a huge difference between what you can do and what you should do. There's a huge difference between what you can do and what you should do. And just because you're in charge and just because you have, as Micah says, the power to do something doesn't make it right. And there's a huge lesson for us, isn't there? There's a huge lesson for God's people of any generation. Just because that's how the system works, just because you can get away with it, just because you have the power, just because that's the way things are, doesn't make it right. I mean, there's all kinds of issues that we can sort of think back on. I think about the issue of slavery a lot. And I think about sort of the way that people in this country not only lived with and dealt with that issue, but also the way that we sort of look back on it and talk about it. And sometimes I hear people say things like, well, you can't, you can't judge people back then by today's standard. And I, that's true, but I'm not interested in judging anyone by today's standard. I'm interested in judging by God's standard, right? And there were people that lived back then in the early 1800s and late 1700s who were abolitionists, who said, this is, this is wrong. And there were also people that just sort of went along with it because that's the way things are. That's the way the system works. That's just the way things are. And that's always been the case. It's always been the case that people oppress other people and that people look and say, I want what you have. Or in that case, I want you to work for me and I'm going to oppress you and enslave you. That's what was going on in Micah's day. People were oppressing and taking and stealing. Why? Because you have the power in your hands. Because you can but just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something, doesn't mean you ought to do that thing. And just because you're getting away with it now and just because that's how the system works now doesn't mean that you are going to always get away with it because justice 
is coming. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, and here's kind of this mocking song, and Micah, or rather the Lord speaking through Micah says, to all of the rich leaders and oppressive peoples of both Jerusalem and Samaria, this is what they're going to sing about you. This is how they're going to taunt you. We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. And do you see the the irony of what's going on? He says, right now, you have the power to take people's fields from them. You have the power to take people's land from them. You have the power to oppress people. And that's the way it's working right now. But there's coming a time where everything that you've accumulated for yourself and what you've taken away from others will be taken away from you. Judgment is coming and you won't be able to escape. You won't be able to hide. It is coming. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? And again, when we talk about justice, when the prophets talk about justice, maybe, I'm not sure what exactly all comes to our mind. Maybe we think about a judge in a courtroom with a gavel. Maybe we think about like, vigilante justice like Batman or something you know maybe maybe we think about like punishing evildoers and that's part of it punishing evildoers but as we've talked about many times before especially on Wednesday nights that justice is about it's about the people that are most likely to be oppressed the people that are most likely to have what's taken away from them taken away from them when God is concerned about justice he usually mentions several groups of people Widows, the fatherless, that is orphans, sojourners, foreigners who are sojourning in your land, and the poor. These are the people that are most likely to be taken advantage of, the people that are most likely to be oppressed. And that's usually true in every community. And he says to the leaders and the rulers of Jacob and the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You know what's right and what's wrong. You know how to take care of the widow. You know how to take care of the foreigner. You know how to take care of the fatherless. You know how to take care of the poor. You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off of my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Now, I mean, that's horrible imagery, isn't it? He's not literally talking about cannibalism, is he? He's talking about economic policies, right? He's talking about what the rulers and what the leaders are doing to the people that are most vulnerable. And he's saying, you're eating them alive. You're making yourselves, taking for yourselves whatever you want and taking advantage of my people. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. 
He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Then he says, verse 5, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. So he talks about the political leaders and then kind of switches gears a little bit and talks about the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. I wrote out in the margin there, will prophesy for food. It's kind of like what they're doing, right? I mean, if you feed me, I'll prophesy peace to you. If you don't, war's coming. Depending on what you pay me, I'll tell you what you want to hear. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. All the people that say, we can see, we can see what the future holds. We know what's coming. We know there's peace in the future. And they're saying that to everybody who's paying them a good wage. Now all of a sudden we'll have to say, I don't see anything. I don't know what's coming. I have no vision. But as for me, Micah says, I'm filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob's, Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Do you see how he's naming these different leaders in both capital cities saying your heads give judgment for a bribe? Your judges aren't bringing justice. They're being bribed. And your priests are teaching for a price. And your prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. It's interesting that all throughout the prophets, I mean from the beginning to the end, over and over and over and over again, the prophets would tell God's people, if you are not just, if you are not fair, if you are not kind, if you are not loving, then I don't care what songs you sing or what prayers you pray or what your religious services look like. They mean nothing, nothing, if you're being unjust and unkind and unloving. You can say all day long, it's not the Lord in the midst of us. No disaster will befall us. Nothing bad's going to happen to us. We're God's people. But you're not living like God's people. And I mean, just think through. Again, we could talk about slavery, but we could talk about issues that have plagued God's people from the very beginning until now. And sometimes we get into this way of thinking that we think, well, I'm, I'm doing, I've got my religious life in order. I'm saying the right prayers and singing the right songs. And God's people have always been told, but if you are not taking care of the people around you, then you, you have nothing to stake your hope on. Because God's people take care of the people around them. 
Jesus told the parable, didn't he? About a rich man and a man named Lazarus. You remember? And it's funny, in the story, Lazarus has a name and the rich man doesn't. And the rich man finds himself in torment when he dies. Why? In the story, what did he do wrong? Was it because he didn't go to the temple and offer sacrifices? Was it because he didn't go to synagogue on the Sabbath? Was it because he didn't pray the prayers? Is it because he didn't sing the songs? No, it's because Lazarus was at his gate and he wanted just a morsel of food from his table. He would have taken the scraps and the crumbs and the rich man gave him nothing. And when he died, he found himself in torment. Over and over and over again, this was the message that God gave to his people. And and the rich man in Jesus' story says, Can't I go back and warn my brothers? Because they're in the same situation. They got poor guys at their their gate and they're not taking care of them. Can I go back and warn them? And what does Abraham say? No. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And what is it that Moses and the prophets said? It's this, isn't it? And and we, we have to take warning as well. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house, and the mountain of the house, a wooded height. I mean, just picture that. It's going to become desolate. It's going to become the woods. It's going to become a place of weeds. It's going to be a place that's overgrown. It's going to be a pile of rubble. Why? Because you are not practicing justice and mercy. You're saying everything is okay when it's really not. Look at Micah chapter 6, verse 3. We'll come back to chapter 4 in just a second, but I want to hit chapter 6. Micah 6 and verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. This is God talking Again, Israel and Judah, are you, are you like tired of me? Have I, have I put too big of a burden on you? What have I done that, that's so bad and awful that you've just forsaken me and turned your back on me? Answer me. I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. I... You were slaves in Egypt. I I rescued you. Not not because anything awesome you had done. Not because you're just wonderful people, but because I love you. And I'm a good God. That's what I did for you. And I gave you Moses and Aaron, Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. Do you remember how Balak hired Balaam to come and curse the people of God, the book of Numbers. And he, he hired him. He said, hey, I got these people, these Israelites coming up, and I need somebody. I need a prophet who's going to speak a bad word against them. And so he hires Balaam. But God, every time, Balaam tried. I mean, bless his heart. He tried, he tried really hard to curse them, but he couldn't do it because every time God confused the words and he ended up blessing them instead of cursing them. And God is saying to the people of Micah's day, look what I've done for you. I rescued you. You had nothing. You were slaves. You were nothing. And I brought you out of Egypt. 
And when everybody wanted to curse you and everybody wanted to destroy you, I blessed you and I turned the curses into blessings. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord from east of the Jordan to crossing in west of the Jordan. I, I brought you across the Jordan into the promised land. With what shall I come before the Lord? So this is, this is like a response. So have I, have I worn you out with all of my blessings? Have I put some big burden on you that is just too much for you to carry? And so as if the people would answer, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? As if, as if God says, stop living the way you're living and then why have you turned your back on me after I blessed you so much and done so much for you? And then as if the people would say, okay, well then, what should I do, God? What, what do you want me to do so that you'll forgive me and you'll have mercy on me and that you'll bless me? You want thousands of sacrifices? Want rivers of oil? What all should I do for you to atone for my sin? And look at what he says in verse 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Let's go ahead, maybe a couple of slides. There we go. Yep, verse 8. O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God? It's, it's not that complicated. You can do it, you know what's just. You know it's right. And again, justice. Do what's fair. Do what's right. When God's people went into the land of Israel, he gave them a law to give them the wisdom to know what's right and what's wrong. And the law required things like when you harvest your field, when you go through and you pick your grapes, don't pick every grape. Leave some behind for the poor. And when you, you harvest your grain out of the field, don't go back and pick up what's on the ground. Leave it for them. And you had, you had wise and lawful people like Boaz. You remember Boaz? And when he knew that there were foreigners and strangers, even Moabites, gleaning in his fields, he instructed his workers, leave some for them. Leave some for people like Ruth. Pull some up and leave it for her because that's what people who love justice, who do justice, that's the kind of thing that they do. They look out for the widow. They look out for the poor. They look out for the fatherless. They look out for the sojourner. And God says, I don't want a thousand sacrifices. I don't want rivers of oil. I don't want your firstborn child. I just want you to do justice. And love kindness, kindness. Most times that word is chesed, translated as steadfast love. Steadfast, you remember last week we were talking about Jonah and Jonah complained about God that you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? When he did what? Like forgave the Ninevites and loved them and blessed them. That's steadfast love, kindness, you want to know what's pleasing to me, God says to his people? Do justice. 
love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Not arrogantly, not proudly, not presumptuously. Walk humbly. The very opposite of how they're living in Micah's day. Saying, God's with us. We're religious, pious people. We're we're living God's way and God will bless us. There's no future that's going to be bad for us. And Micah says, you're not. You're not living as God's people. And the future's not bright. It's, It's very dim. But all throughout Micah, throughout all the prophets, there's this hope and this promise for the remnant of God's people who will be faithful, who will do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with God. And there's these promises about the coming Messiah. Very quickly, I know we're out of time, but Micah chapter four and verse one. He says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills and people shall flow to it And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. I mean, that prophecy must have sounded so bizarre to them. That you mean there's coming a time where people from the Gentile nations are going to say, tell me about Moses. Tell me about Abraham. Tell me about the law of God. Teach me about Yahweh God. I want to follow him and do what pleases him. Can you imagine in a day where the only people that worshiped Yahweh God were the Jewish people? And Micah says, no, there's coming a time where everything's going to be turned upside down and where there are going to be people from all the nations that flock to God and say, I want to know this God. He shall judge Yahweh God shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They'll turn their weapons of war into farming tools. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Who is that? That's us, isn't it? The nations that have come to this God and learned to walk in his ways and have turned our weapons of war into farming tools and love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, and we can go to the very last slide, and learn that this is what's pleasing to God. To do what? To do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. This is the age of the Messiah. This is the latter days. We are the nations that have come to this God that said, I want to know what's pleasing to you. And the same thing that was pleasing to him then is pleasing to him now. And that's why the apostles They took this word of the Lord out from Zion, out from Jerusalem to all of us in the nations. They would say, this is what it looks like to be spirit-filled people, to be filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Is it important that we be people that pray and sing and that are religious people? Yes, absolutely. But... Not if we're not going to do justice and love mercy 
love our neighbor as ourself, and even love our enemy. Let's go to God in prayer before we close. Father God, we pray that you transform our hearts, that you continue to help us to look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and help us, Father, to be the people who do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with you. We thank you, Father, for giving us the opportunity to do just that in Jesus and through Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.